Hello, hello. Welcome and welcome back to the Blazers for Goalposts podcast. Today I am joined by my co-host Joe, as per usual, as well as our old friends Yanni and John. I'm happy to say that we do also have another great guest on the call that Joe will be introducing shortly. As has become a sort of tradition on the pod, we will be dipping our toes into the waters of today's episode's theme during our mini intros, which I am about to kick off. So get those toes ready for dipping, boys. Let me tell you, the water's great. In keeping with today's theme of money in football, I had a little think about my favorite luxury expenses. I've never really been one to break the bank, so prepare to be underwhelmed. But something that I like to treat myself to that costs just a little bit more is extra avocado. On a sandwich or as guacamole in my burrito, those extra 50 pence don't really compare to the type of money that we'll be discussing later in the show. But Joe, what is a favorite luxury purchase of yours? I actually made a luxury purchase recently that I'm quite happy with. Now, my luxury purchase was a Tractor Control S2 DJ controller. Whilst I might not have mastered the art of DJing just yet, our guest today is very much a king of comedy. We're delighted to welcome Alex Hilton onto the podcast. He's one of the fastest rising stars on the UK comedy scene, and he's an avid Manchester City fan. Alex, have you made any luxury purchases during lockdown? What a lovely introduction that was, by the way. That was, that oh, was genuinely right. heartwarming. That, my mum will like that when she listens to the podcast. <laughs> that was good. That was nice. It's like a luxury item. What warrants a beer or like any sort of decadent foods? My, my, I've got no limit on it. Like normally I'd be, oh, I've had a really long day. I'm going to crack open a beer and have a cold one and chill out. Whereas now, in lockdown, because I've got no structures to my day. Oh, mate, like coming back from the post office. Oh, bloody hell. That's what, what, what an effort that was. Going all that way and back and out of the queue outside. Oh, crime, crime time for a beer. Like, or just, like, I'm having a difficult morning, so I have to send three emails. So I need a whole pack <laughs> of biscuits for my coffee. I've got no standard <laughs> anymore. Like, as a treat for working hard. My luxury thing would just be where you are right now, mate, in the pub. Just sitting there with a nice pint, and honestly. Just for a reference to everyone listening, Alex is currently sitting in a pub because Alex lives in a pub. Being locked down on your own in a pub. It's like halfway between I Am Legends and Shaun of the Dead, which is quite a nice role play and not at all tragic. Uh, <laughs> Yanni, what do you have for us? Uh, I don't have a pub, unfortunately. I'd love to. I'd love to. It sounds like the dream. Something that I do get is the nice peanut butter when I buy peanut butter. Like I go for the nice, natural, good for you stuff that tastes like peanuts rather than sugar and peanuts. And that's probably like the thing that I regularly get, which is like that little bit more expensive than it needs to be. But I enjoy it and it feels like a treat as well. Today, we are focusing on the impact that sudden and huge investments into clubs have had on the landscape of the footballing hierarchy as we've come to know it. 20 years ago, compared to today, teams that people might have called big clubs have fallen from grace and slipped down the table and maybe even down through the leagues. Others have emerged from the shadows and risen to the top. 20 years from now, it will likely be the same story. Often, financial hardship has been at the heart of some of those fallen giants' demises. But it's even more rare that you see a club catapult themselves from pretenders to contenders without serious money being involved. In my lifetime, and arguably in the history of the game, Chelsea were the first club to really propel themselves into consistent trophy contention off the back of a massive influx of cash into the club. At the very least, this was the first time that a foreign investment like this had ever been seen in the Premier League. 
that foreign investor is Roman Abramovich, who took Chelsea off the hands of Ken Bates in 2003. 17 years later, and it's hard to look at his tenure at the club as anything other than a massive success. Under Ranieri, in Abramovich's first season as owner, Chelsea splashed the cash on the likes of Hernan Crespo, Joe Cole and Claude Makélélé and managed to finish second, which was already a nice improvement from a team who had typically been setting the goal of a top four finish in prior years. As would become a theme under the ownership of Abramovich, anything less than the best isn't good enough, and Chelsea and Ranieri parted ways. That opened the door to Jose Mourinho, and the rest is really history. But what I'll do is pass things off to you guys, if anybody wants to jump in on Chelsea's spending in particular, and also the success that they had under Mourinho. Maybe we can even chat about some of the other managers who Abramovich has gone with since then and how those appointments went. I think one of the interesting things about Chelsea is what's happened since, because they got Mourinho after the first year. And as you said, that brought immediate success, the kind of transformation they were looking for, league titles contending in the Champions League. But then when things started to go south, since then, they've kind of had a rotation of various managers, not one single legacy manager. And they've still maintained a certain level of success. And I wonder how much of that is because they've become used to being a club in not exactly crisis, but in sort of constant transition. And as football as a whole has moved more towards transition, that they've been most used to it. And so know how to sustain that level the best out of other clubs where you see that happen at, you know, United, since Ferguson left, they haven't really been able to deal with it. Arsenal since, well, before Wenger left, but especially since Wenger left, haven't really been able to deal with it. But Chelsea have had a real like eclectic mix of managers, various styles, various different temperaments, but have won things all along the way, regardless of who's in charge. I think the thing about why Chelsea have remained successful whilst having multiple managers kind of comes down to the player power at the club as well, in that for a long period of time, John Terry and Frank Lampard arguably had more power and uh, like a stronger relationship with Abramovich than the likes of the AVBs, the Dimateos, the Avram Grants. So even though it was like a merry-go-round of managers, you had these two kind of leaders in the dressing room that were still able to keep the squad united. And obviously, as much as it pains me to say it, they have done very well. I mean, obviously, I hate Chelsea. I will <laughs> open it you. But you, you can't help but say, yeah, they've pumped a lot of money in and it's reaped the rewards. And sadly, it looks like today, Lampard's Chelsea, now they've just bought Werner, Ziyech and potentially Havertz. The glory days might be coming back sooner than I thought they would be. Speaking of big signings like the ones you've just mentioned who will be teaming up with Chelsea for the next season, do you guys have any opinions on one or two pivotal signings back in the day who might have been players to really be at the heart of that transformation? I think a player that was huge for Chelsea in the early Mourinho era was Ricardo Carvalho. I mean, the centre-back partnership he had with Terry was immense. It helped that they had Petr Cech behind them in goal, who was absolutely incredible as well. But between the three of them, there wasn't a better centre-back pairing than goalkeeper. So, yeah, Carvalho would be the guy, I'd say, who was a, a major signing in the earlier Abramovich period. It's weird, because you said in the introduction about how there's not a lot of like legacy at Chelsea, but I think it's a testament to how well they bought and that there's players that we've not even mentioned yet, like Michael Essien, who's probably one of the best players of his position to have played in the Premier League in its entirety. And yet he's sort of seventh or eighth on the list of great Chelsea players that came in in that era. People like Petr Cech, who is 
Like again, like a, an awesome goalkeeper. Players like Drogba, who is so often forgotten, people talk about the greatest Premier League strikers of all time. But the ones that stick in my head are all the ones that went wrong. Like I remember Shevchenko going to Chelsea and thinking, like, this is over for the Premier League. <laughs> and he was just woeful. Like it just didn't work. Adrian Mutu wandering around, like facing the wrong direction on a corner and that. Like Majeta Kesman coming in for something like, was, was he about 18 million? Which back then was like mega, mega money. Crazy. Like money, and, like, and even like later in the era, like Torres going 50 million. Like Chelsea's ability to turn someone to like, so, like Torres was an absolute Premier League proven, international, world class. You could put him in any team, any league, and he would hit 20 a season. Oh, no, actually, he's terrible. And it was just right place, <laughs> right time at Liverpool and Chelsea. Like, and he was missing sitters. But it's a way where everyone sort of hated Chelsea for it when I was growing up. But I quite liked Chelsea because I, I sort of turned on to football when I was 10 in 2004. And it was just United and Arsenal, just United and Arsenal. So when Chelsea came in, I didn't really care how they'd done it. They just made it more interesting. And it was nice to see this these new guys. And Mourinho was so good to watch. It could, he could say anything or do anything, it felt like. I don't know. I, I quite liked it. And it, I, I sort of feel... Even with City now, Manchester City, people hate us. But I think Spurs especially, in that 2010 period, City was such a, a cat amongst the pigeons that it changed that top four and it let City and Spurs sneak in. And I think it's created the chaos that we've got now. And that would only would have happened, I think, if Manchester City got good enough to start taking points off the top four. It's interesting you mention Man City, Alex. Obviously, that's a team close to your heart. But we, of course, have spoken about Chelsea. But I think now it is time to kind of delve into the, the Man City, well, the modern Man City, I should say. And I think, actually, this story starts in 2007 when Taksin Shinawatra, who was the former Prime Minister of Thailand, bought the club. So during that summer, you had Sven come to the club as manager. And the kind of big summer signings that year were the likes of Rolando Bianchi, Martin Petrov and Alano. But if you go back to that time, I remember it still felt like quite a big deal because in the years previous, City had been a kind of lower league Premier League team, almost, you know, just surviving. But then after a year of Sven, things weren't going so well. And I think Shinawatra was having some problems of his own back in Thailand. He sold the club to Sheikh Mansour of Abu Dhabi. And that, I mean, is when this story properly starts. On the day he bought the club, Rubinho tipped up, something we've actually spoken about in a previous episode of ours. And then Mark Hughes is there. Eventually he's binned off and you've got Mancini there. And suddenly Tevez turns up. You eventually you've got Yaya Torre, David Silva, Sergio Aguero. And then eventually the trophies start coming to the point now where under Pep Guardiola, City are playing some of the best football the Premier League's ever seen. But of course, City's story hasn't been without a few controversies along the way. At the moment, I think as it stands, City won't be playing in Europe for the next couple of seasons. But of course, that still might change. Alex, as the, um, the Man City fan on the show today, how did it feel firstly when Shinawatra turned up? But secondly... When you were bought by Sheikh Mansour, did you truly understand at the time what was to follow? First off, well pronounced on Saxon Shinawatra. You said that with a newsreader confidence. Didn't even blink. <laughs> Most yeah. people that aren't City fans trip over that. That was good. I'm impressed. I think because we had that Shinawatra, and that was, that was a weird one because we were promised mega money then. And I think we thought that we were going to sign superstars. And then... We were still signing players that you had to go and Google on find on YouTube and watch those weird compilations with terrible music. 
I had Ronaldo Bianchi on the back of his shirt. I remember that. And he was, he was fine. There were a handful of players that we signed. Sven had loads of promises. The thing was, is because it didn't really work out, and it took us from being a, like a team that were finishing 12th or 14th to a team that were finishing 7th or 8th. And we did get into the Europa League. But it wasn't everything we've been promised. It wasn't titles in the Champions League. When Shakeman saw Porters in 2008, it was a bit like, well, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. And then it, when Rubinho signed later that day, you thought, oh, hang on a minute. That's a player I've heard of. They might have something to, to say here. It was exciting. City have always been, in my lifetime, an exciting club to support, purely because we've either been going down or going up. So it, it kind of fit into that. And I think it was just, you'll see what, what the next step on the roller coaster is. And to compare Shinner Watcher and Shape Mansour, I think it was very rushed. We were signing players very quickly. There was no real long-term strategy. We were signing 31-year-olds that had a decent record in the Ukrainian league and that kind of thing. Whereas Shape Mansour came in, and whilst there were signings like Rubinho and Adebayor and Tevez that all happened very quickly, there were also players like Vincent Company and Pablo Zabaleta that no one had really heard of but were good young prospects. And there was huge investment into the youth system. And it was run, it, the club was set up for long-term success and it was poaching all the backroom staff from Barcelona. And Tiki Bagherstein has probably been City's greatest signing and he's someone no one's ever heard, but he's been masterminding as a, as a chairman or a director of football, masterminding the whole project, which is now why, I might be arrogant to say this, but I don't think players come to City for the money anymore. They come because we're a genuine title contender and we look like a team that might win the Champions League. And if you are the next best thing in Europe, you probably want to play for Man City as much as you want to play for Madrid or Bayern Munich or any other heavyweight. So that, that's the difference between the two for me. You mentioned something, Alex, about not only a bunch of money being pumped into the first team squad at City, but likewise invested into the youth project. Besides the likes of Phil Foden, who we're sort of finally seeing City kind of like, yeah, reap the fruits of, of what they sowed a while back. Is there anyone else that we should be looking out for? And likewise, do you think that there's been enough of a focus on that? Or has the academy been overshadowed by the talent in the first team squad and it's just impossible for players to break in? That's a tough question because I think it, it, six or ten or half doesn't or the other. I mean, I think City can take credit for Jaden Sancho. Is that unfair? I think he spent almost his entire youth career at City and has gone on to be like an instant first team in the Bundesliga. As is Rabbi Matondo is making big moves over there. Uh, Eric Garcia, that I think people outside of City might not be aware of yet, but look, looks awesome. And he played 89 minutes on, on Wednesday against, uh, against Arsenal. So, as Arsenal fans, you might have noticed him. And he looks the business. He looks like he, he, he can play. But then because this, the first team is so good... It's hard to fit those 18-year-olds in. And I think for Eric Garcia, I mean, you must look at people like Jaden Sancho that's gone abroad and had almost instant success and walked into the England team. Eric Garcia must be thinking there's got to be big clubs back in Spain that would take him. He would start for about 16 of the 20 Premier League clubs. And I think he might look at any team that wants a centre-half and think, well, I could go there and start straight away. And that might be where his <laughs> career really kicks on. start Arsenal, mate, at centre-half. <laughs> tell you that. Well, yeah, Your that's best thing. player on Wednesday was David Luiz. Exactly, exactly. And that David Luiz is one of the most decorated centre-halves in the world. And he's getting, compared to Eric Garcia, he looked the more composed, the more intelligent player. And it shows the standard of players we've got in our youth system. There's so many great players that are coming through that we will never get to see it, see. And I say that as a fact. One, Foden will come, but I, I do wonder if that's because it's part of the brand and that he's from Manchester and that the club really want him to succeed so he could be a kind of Man City, Steven Gerrard or Frank Lampard type player. 
I was quite upset when he scored against us the other day. If, if there was one player I didn't want to score against Arsenal the other day, it was Foden. I, I don't know if that's just a, like a mentality outside of Man City. Have you seen his birthday cakes? What's his birthday cake? To fill you in, Joe, he got a bit of stick because the same week that the Daily Mail ran a story about Tosin Adarabayo buying a house for his parents, but he never made a Premier League appearance, Phil Foden's mates from school got him a birthday cake and the birthday cake was the shape of a wallet full of cash. And everyone was saying, well, how come Phil Foden can flaunt his wealth, but a black player can't? A very yeah, good yeah. question. But what those people don't understand is that was actually a mistake at the bakery, and that cake was meant for Yaya Torre. To quote Jigsaw from the horror movie franchise Saw, do you want to play a game? I reference that because watching Arsenal play City the other day was about as fun as being one of Jigsaw's victims in the film. Anyway, don't worry guys, unlike Jigsaw, I won't be kidnapping you and forcing you to cut off your own legs, at least not this week. Instead, I think it's about time for Hawaii Witch Lads. So I'll be picking a particular fixture from down the years, and you lot have to name one of the team's starting 11s from that match day. Right? Let's get into it. In keeping with today's theme, this is going to be a Manchester City lineup. It was a nil-nil draw against Charlton back in April of 2007, around a month before the tax in Shinawatra sort of money came in. So Stuart Pearce was in charge still. Oh, and brilliant. So if you feel guys are ready to start naming from keeper to striker, the starting 11, go for it. I'll give you some clues if you need it. Cool. Right. Kasper Schmeichel? No, he's not the goalkeeper. Was David Ooh. James still knocking about? <laughs> no, this guy actually, he was signed from a French team. Isaacson. It, yeah. He played, he played about 10 games, I think, because he, he broke his arm or something like that. and then didn't... It didn't work out for him. So back, back four? I reckon I... Is the left back Michael Bull? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. I'm <laughs> Michael Bull. That was the first person you went wow. for. I'm surprised. But yeah, you got it. Is <laughs> Mika Richards in that game? Is this why we're doing that game? Is this, the, go- is this the game he knocks ben someone out? <laughs> that was Ben Thatcher, I think. Oh, ben, ben Thatcher in Patcher. the team anywhere? No, he's not. Oh. He's not. Just Michael Rich, Ball. Richard Dunn has got to be playing centre half. Yeah, Richard Dunn is in there. Is Mika yeah. Richards in there somewhere? No, but another young city defender who kind of was coming oh, up. Oh, yeah, Ned Manua then, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, he was right back. Well done. Yeah. You've almost got the back four. The other Sylvan Distan? Yeah, yeah, you got it, Yoni. So that's the back four and the keeper. Moving on to, I suppose, the midfield and the forward now. Ooh, so Joey Barton? Yeah, he's in there. Hey. Michael Johnson? Yeah, sad story about Michael Johnson, <laughs> but he's in there, yeah. Now, was this the year we had Kiki Masampa on the wing? Oh, you know, it might have been the same year, but he, he wasn't starting in this game. On the wing is player from China. Oh, Sunji Hai. Oh. Hai. <laughs> He's obviously a legend at City, isn't he? Sunji Hai scored an own goal. Uh, Manchester City played, and we were the only team in English football to lose 1-0 when the opposition didn't have a shot on target, and that was a Sunji Hai own goal. <laughs> uh, but he, he's, he's well known. He's well. He's just a well known city player. No one, no one really knew what his position was. He just sort of <laughs> turned up and ran around. But he sort of turned <laughs> up and ran around like a headless chicken. No one really knew what he did. But my my dad told me that he was the best player in the world, and I just believed him. I just like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, all right. Never seen the score. Never to do anything. And he was kind of like a fullback. Then he's a winger. But I think it was like an early attempt by City to crack into the Chinese market. Right. But yeah, <laughs> Sunday high. What a player. The rest of the midfield, you're just missing one lad. And he, after City, Ooh. quite good at City. And he went on to play for Newcastle and Villa and Stoke. Stephen Ireland. Yeah, Stephen Ireland, who, like I said, I, was, I used to be a bit of a fan of his when he was at City. He was quite a good player. Uh, now we've got the forwards. Is um, Samaras up front? 
No, the Greek George R. Samaras is not up there, but there's a, there's an Englishman and a Belgian. Oh, there's I know. Englishman, uh, Darius Vassell. Yeah, Darius Vassell. Yeah, you got it. Uh, the forgotten man, Darius Vassell. Yeah, surely. Yeah, he scored a bicycle kick against the Netherlands, I think, for England once. He did. Yeah, he played a lot under Sven for England, like. Yeah, and then they were reunited at City. That'll yeah. be Emil and Penza. Yeah. What a player. Uh, a friend of mine bought me an Emil and Penza shirt after we had a sort of running joke and he bought it signed off the internet for 30 quid and then found out that it was being shipped by Emil and Penza. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I love that. I do have one more for you guys that maybe we can try to get through. And we've spoken about City in this episode already. We've spoken about Chelsea, but I think that that Chelsea team around the time that it was gathering success and even before is a bit too notable maybe. So what I've gone for instead is this was the game that Mourinho won his first ever trophy at Chelsea, which if you guys can remember would have been the Carling Cup final against Liverpool. And I'm actually looking for Liverpool starting 11 from that oh. day. Plot twist. Have at it, lads. Um, Dudek in goal? Yeah, Dudek's in there. Jersey. I'm going to go Steve Finnan. <laughs> yeah, that's the next name on my list. You've got it. Jamie uh, Carragher? Yeah. Uh, John Arnorisa. Is he there? Yeah, he is. And actually, Didn't he yeah. score after like 10 seconds in that game? One of the quickest I think so, yeah. League Cup <laughs> final goals ever. Great knowledge. Jimmy Traore. Yeah, yeah, go on. Oh, well done. Love it. The, the other defender is a bit of a Liverpool legend, went on to manage a team in the Bundesliga and play for a team. Oh, Sammy Hippier. Yeah, see, it is. All right, we've got the midfield coming up, guys. Deep Mark Hammer got... and then Stevie G, obviously, because he got the own goal yeah. in that again. Yeah. There's a left winger that you guys are missing. Luis Garcia. Well, he was up front, so you've got that. Mark Gonzalez. No, the Chilean had not arrived at Anfield yet. He was the failure before Mark Gonzalez, probably. Is he British? He's not. He's Australian. Oh, cool. Oh, Harry Kuehl. Yeah. And besides Kuehl, who you've now got, there is just one more striker who... It's quite easy to forget that he played for Liverpool, but he's actually... Orientes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> So this section's about teams outside of England putting money into the clubs, smashing their financials, ploughing the money in and seeing what happens. If you were a massive energy drink, Red Bull, what would you do? Would you be like, shall we just buy a German football team? See what happens. Or the same guy that was like, should we sponsor people running off a cliff and jumping into the sea? That'll be... Uh, exactly. That's <laughs> no. not really working for us, but I reckon this uh, German football Any idea is a good forward. idea. I like that. And that's what happened. RB Leipzig, they're like the kind of MK Dons of Germany. No one likes them. I think it's slightly harsh, but, you know, I don't like MK Dons, so, you know, there we go. But uh, they've got... I would say they're kind of disruptors. They're a kind of modern football club driven by branding and... Instagram and socials and they're very good on social media and they've got a few decent players as well they've got Adamola Lookman who I like I mean he's a great little player Burma uh, now gone to Chelsea and they've got Dio Upamakano is that how you say it did I just have a Paul Merson moment or is that how you say it I think people are going to know who you're talking about yeah we're forever linked with this this guy will he ever come to Arsenal probably not do you have any other clubs out there that you think of uh piled in the cash well there is one team that i'd like to speak about and i don't think i've been this excited to speak about something on this podcast since we spoke about amir zaki on the transfer episode and this is fc angie makakala 
this is one of the weirdest stories of recent times. On the 18th of January 2011, which just happens to be my birthday, Angie was um, purchased by a billionaire called Suleiman Kerimov, who comes from the Dagestan region where Makakala is. And he essentially just pumped a shit ton of money into the club. They were like an all right Russian team, but then Kerimov buys them. And the first thing he does is bring, admittedly a veteran, but still Roberto Carlos to the club. So that's the first moment when everyone goes, oh shit, Roberto Carlos has just gone to an unknown team in Russia. This is a bit weird. But then of course it would get even weirder when they'd go on to sign the likes of Samuel Eto'o, Yuri Zhirkov, Vasana Diara, Willian, and of course, one of the best centre-backs in the Premier League at the time of him being bought, Christopher Samba. And actually, to just add on top of this, they had Gus Hiddink as their manager. So they were assembling a little bit of a weird dream team to be playing in Dagestan in Russia. It got even weirder in that even though they would play their home matches in Makakaba, they would all live in Moscow because Makakala was so dangerous. There was essentially like a war going on there. So, I mean, this is all a bit weird. They did get into the Europa League and actually played against the likes of Liverpool, Newcastle and Spurs. But in the 2013 to 14 season, suddenly it all kind of fell apart for them when um, Kerimov started taking money out of the club. And then weirdly, they started selling all their players to Dynamo Moscow. Essentially, after this all happened, Angie got relegated. And actually, to this day, they are still kind of suffering the effects of this crazy period in that they were meant to be playing in, I think, the Russian equivalent of the championship this season, but they essentially didn't have enough money to do so. So they are or will be playing in the third tier of Russian football. But guys, what I'm just interested in is, what do you remember about this Angie team? Um, because it was really weird, but at one point it did seem like maybe they were going to become a bit of a force in European football. Yeah, they definitely managed to put enough star names into a squad within a short enough space of time to the point where you like, this sounds a bit familiar. And obviously City and Chelsea that we spoke about earlier went on to be successful in those endeavours, whereas this Angie thing, it's one prospect tempting players to London and tempting players to Manchester. And then it's another prospect tempting players to war-torn Russia. So the longevity of the project was probably not masterminded as well as it could have been. And being surrounded by literal missiles and just war doesn't help. So yeah, it definitely caught my eye, but it was kind of a flash in the pan, the, the Angie project. Yeah, it's one, one of the strange things about it for me is that when clubs get a lot of money, a huge investment, usually they are ambitious in the types of player they try to sign. They try and get the best on the market at the time. But Angie's strategy seemed to be to get all of these various eclectic, washed-up players who had once been world-class, but were on the downslide, basically. Which is a strange strategy when you're really trying to establish yourself as a European force. But one of those clubs which, you know, suddenly get all these players, you're aware of them, you look forward to playing with them on FIFA or whatever. The thing was about Angie was Samueto, I mean, he was maybe on the verge of being past it, but he was still a very good player at the time. So that was probably... Of all the signings they made, the weird, well, maybe Willian as well, actually. That was quite weird. He went there. My knowledge of Russian politics is not what it should be. Sorry, guys. But, um, <laughs> Alex, how could you? As far as I'm aware, I think it was in a weird period where Dagestan, because it's historically its own country, and then it went through a kind of weird, like, nationalism. And I think it was trying to sort of say, look how great we are. We should be independent by signing all these foreign players that aren't from here. 
but I think it was that it, there was it was tied into that. I'm not sure, but it goes back to what I was saying about City about doing it the right way and the wrong way. And, and I feel there was there was clearly like no long term plan. It was just we'll just buy loads of players every season and see where they take us. But it's one of those weird quirks where I think it just doesn't happen in Russia because the the, the top teams are so entrenched. But this happens like every three years in England. Like it's. It happened to City and it sort of worked, but it happened to QPR, it happened to Cardiff. It may well happen to Newcastle the next couple of years, where just some eccentric mad billionaire has no idea what they could do. Like I remember the, the odds, I forgot the name of the Malaysian guy that bought Cardiff. Oh, Vincent Tony Tan. Fernandez. Oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vincent Tan. And like, he was at 1.3 to 1 to appoint himself as manager. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it seems... Like, I loved how he wore the, the Cardiff shirt over his suit. That was an iconic look. And yeah, the highest trousers in football. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was It was clear, like, what more indication the people at Cardiff or the Football League need to know that this guy was clearly mental? Do you know what I mean? Like, a, a clear lunatic. And we should be grateful that he bought Cardiff, because otherwise he'd be, like, hunting humans on a game reserve or something like that. But, <laughs> It goes to show, like Manchester City, our eccentric billionaire happens to also be a brilliant businessman. He treats the club like a business and we're run incredibly ruthlessly. We're quite fortunate and it looks like Newcastle might go that way. But QPR and Cardiff and so many other clubs get bought by an eccentric billionaire who is also a lunatic. And that kind of goes hand in hand with eccentricity. And I think Angie's just one of those where a well-meaning but also mental billionaire just messes with a club for a bit. Uh, Angie Makeshkala will always be a good, fun quiz answer. Moving from Angie to Andalusia, another team that had a lot of money pumped into them in the last decade or so was Malaga CF. In 2010, Sheikh Al-Tani, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, basically cleared all their debts and had this big plan to establish them among the Spanish and European elite and break the duopoly in Spain. Although in his first summer, he only spent £16 million, and most of that went on Salomon Rondon, since of Newcastle and sort of being Benitez's groupie fame. But soon after that, I think in November, they appointed Manuel Pellegrini, which at the time was a bigger name than he is now, perhaps. He'd just come off the back of, well, what was a record-breaking season with Real Madrid. They would have won any other La Liga in history with the points total he achieved, but they were pipped just by Pep Guardiola's Barcelona. But he was a big name to arrive that winter. And then they start flaunting their wealth a bit. In the January of 2011, they sign Martin Demichelis, who is, I think, contractually obliged to follow Pellegrini around, or at least be linked with the clubs he's managing. Julio Baptista, Ignacio Camacho, and Willy Caballero another one who Pellegrini would work with later. And then the next summer was when they really, really started to build a team. Santi Cazorla, Nacho Monreal, Jeremy Tulalon, Ruud van Nistroy all joined. Joaquin, Spanish legend. Isco joined from Valencia. They got Carlos Khomeini. Is it Carlos Khomeini? Is that his first name? Have I just made that up? Yeah, that's his first name. Okay, good. curious, <laughs> <laughs> his middle name is Idris. Okay, Carlos Idris you know Khomeini. Why do you know that? Why do you know that? I just, just do. Just do. And that is the only moment in my life when it felt right to tell people. <laughs> Every fact is there for a reason. You never know when the opportunity is going to arrive. 
Do you know um, what? So, I've, been, I've been a guest on a lot of podcasts, not to, to brag, but <laughs> I've been doing this a little while. That's by a distance the most obscure bit of football knowledge <laughs> I've ever heard. That's a, that, there's no, that's never going to be a quiz question. There's no reason for that. <laughs> what is Carlos Khamenei's middle name for <laughs> the final question on who wants to be a millionaire? I couldn't even tell you Carlos Khamenei's nationality. I, I want to say, was he... I don't even, was he Cameroonian? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun guy. Well, I mean, I'll take your word for it, clearly. Yeah. You, I don't know if you write yeah. a book on Carlos Khamenei. <laughs> if I was on Mastermind, he would be my topic. Is that the next episode of this podcast? We're going to do Clubs with Money and the Carlos Khamenei <laughs> oh, episode. <laughs> if we talk about him enough, he might agree to be a guest on one of them. Who I knows? thought you were going to say if I say his name three times and turn off the lights, he'll appear. <laughs> Carlos Khamenei was one of the January signings. <laughs> <laughs> But as we know, it didn't quite work out. They did qualify for the Champions League. And you may remember that quite epic tie with Borussia Dortmund. A couple of weeks ago, we talked on the Bundesliga podcast about their run to the Champions League final. Malaga came so close to knocking them out. And I think, if my memory serves me correctly, it was an offside Felipe Santana goal in the last minute that eliminated Malaga in the quarterfinals. But what I want to know, I mean, I've listed a few lovely players there, ones that went on to bigger and better things later in their career. Do you think that Malaga could have become this sort of cult European club or achieved even better things, broken up the duopoly, had they kept that team together and not had to sell them because essentially their investor lost interest? Yes, is the answer. Because yeah. if, we're going, if we're going back to like with Angie, the fact that no one wants to go and live in war-torn Dagestan, and if we're going back to even like Man City or like a Newcastle now, people don't want to, you know, they're going to miss the beach or they don't want to go and live up north or whatever in the UK. Who wouldn't want to go and live in Malaga and play for a team there and just, you kind of feel like, yeah, if the money stayed, why wouldn't more people go there? Obviously, there's always going to be the Real Madrid and Barcelona thing in La Liga, but why not? I mean, if I was a footballer who was really good in that time, I'd want to go and play for Malaga. I assume that's why, that's why they why they did sign so many decent players. Yeah, the pieces were there. Like, Yoni mentioned Pellegrini as well, who, off the back of a great season for Madrid, would then, you know, whatever happened at Malaga happened, and then he's going to go on and have his time at City. So the point is that was peak Pellegrini. Like, he knew what was up. And uh, if he'd had enough time with those players, um, I'm sure they would have achieved something. But I'm thankful that it didn't work out and that we got, um, as an Arsenal fan, Santi Cazorla and Nacho Monreal off the back of it. And you mentioned players going on to bigger and better things. Well, there's two players who went on to Arsenal. So I don't, know if, uh, <laughs> I don't know if the two things match up, but I'm not complaining. So now it's time for another game. Ooh, uh, yeah. I will be giving clues to certain players who at one time or another signed for one of these nouveau riche clubs early on in their wealth. And the rest of the podcast will have to guess who it is based on one or two clues that I give them. So the first player that I want you to guess, the only clue I will give you is that he has represented two of the clubs that we have talked about today and signed for both of them within the first year that they received their big investment. So are we talking Chelsea and Man City? We're talking one of those teams. Interesting. Uh, are we talking Manchester City and Angie Makashkala? We're not, no. Okay. I, what well, about then Malaga and City? It is those two teams. Okay. Okay. All right. And he played for both of them and he signed for both. So he signed on, in the Sheikh Mansur or the Taksin Shinawatra? The Sheikh Mansur. Okay. Era. Within a year of both investments. 
It wouldn't have been Caballero. Uh, he's not, um, he's oh, not Ecuadorian, is he? He's not Ecuadorian, though okay, you're on the Felipe, right continent. Felipe Caicedo, I was thinking of. <laughs> but he is a South American, okay. Roque Santa Cruz, no. Is Ooh, correct. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, hey, that's a great hey, shout. Rocket Santa Cruz. What a baller. Alex, what did you think of Santa Cruz at City? Um, it was just disappointing. It was just disappointing because he had Bayern Munich on his CV before Blackburn. And then he'd been pretty good at Blackburn and pretty dangerous. And he was one of those transfers where it made absolute sense. It, there was no reason why he wouldn't be able to transfer that. I think he came under Mark Hughes as well, who'd had him at Blackburn if I'm not mistaken. And it just didn't fall for him. I think he scored, he scored a brace in like the first month and then didn't score for about 10 or 12 games. Yeah, and it's strange really because you think that the, the players that came later, Adebayor and Tevez and so on, he would have fit in with those. And he had an all right career after, after City, I think. Um, but he was just disappointed, really, of which we've had many of those down the years. Would you consider Benjani disappointing? Because I've met him. He's a really nice guy. I can imagine Benjani Mwarawari is a very nice man. Um, he <laughs> is forever in City folklore. One of the greatest and laziest celebrations, which is literally just pointing. How you can make pointing iconic, that takes real character <laughs> charisma. Um, and he also he also scored uh, with Beat United at Old Trafford, which is will, will always write you into City folklore. I love that game because it was the one when they wore the kits with no sponsorships and it was the old school kind of retro jerseys that both of the teams wore that day. I remember Benjani scoring. Yeah, and actually at the testimonial for Vincent Company last year, Benjani was still fit. He was still in good nick and he was head and shoulders, one of the best players on the pitch that day. Uh, so he can, he can still deliver the goods, Benjani. Oh. I, I reckon he could probably still play for Zimbabwe. I reckon he was, he was <laughs> that good when I saw him. Johnny, did you have another one for us? Uh, yeah, I do. So the clue I'm going to give you for this one is that he is a World Cup finalist. Okay, is he Spanish? No. <laughs> is he? Yeah, we, we could... Right we continent. Could... Right continent, okay. So he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's German, that's what you're saying. I'm not saying that, no. Oh, no. Okay. Is he, is he uh, was this person a World Cup winner? Not a World Cup winner. And Kai, I think you have his nationality. Do you ask? He's Dutch. Yeah, Dutch. And he played in that final. And he mm -hmm. played for one of these clubs. Is it Khaled Boularoos? No. But <laughs> that could also apply, I suppose. Um, Is it the martial artist Nigel de Jong? It's not the martial artist Nigel de Jong. Was he, um, was he good at one of the clubs we spoke about? Was he sort of seen as being a good player there? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, oh. But, you know, he, he, he had pedigree. Of some kind. Did he uh, play for Chelsea? No. No, okay. Interesting. Um, I'm a bit stuck here. Um, yeah. Do you have any, any other for us, Yanni? Um, he joined this club from a club in Germany, a sort of generally mid-table club in Germany. Oh, boy. My word. I think, I think we need to know the club, but you don't have to tell us. We need to guess this club. Which club is it? It's a Do we know his position? Have we, have we worked that out yet? You haven't worked that out yet. Defensive midfielder, maybe? No. So he's Dutch. He played from a German club. All right. So which, which of these clubs did he do? It wasn't Malaga. Wasn't it? Okay, so it's Malaga. So it's a Dutch. 
Oh, oh, oh! I've got it. Um, Did this guy play as a centre back? And I'd forgotten that he played for Malaga. Is it Joris Matyson? Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. It's well, Joris Matyson. That is oh. that is probably the most hipstery. Who are you? I reckon. <laughs> yeah. oh, what hipstery? I, 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 <laughs> I thought it would be a bit obscure. Uh, I have one more if you want. Yeah, go on. Go, go on. Throw it at. Okay, so this guy has a Premier League medal. Let's start with that. Just the one. Chelsea City. Okay. Lenny Pidgeley. <laughs> no. Look him up, kids. Look him up. Is he um, British? He is British. British Premier League winner. Okay. Um, did he play for Chelsea? He did. Okay. Okay, so he was signed from another team in England. Mm-hmm. He was. Was he, a, was he a left back? He wasn't a left back. Well, so it's not Wayne Bridge. That's a shame. It's not was Wayne he Bridge. A right back. He wasn't a right back, no. <laughs> I was going to say Glenn Johnson. He didn't play for both City and Chelsea, did he? No, he didn't. Oh, no, it's not Shawnee. Not Shawnee. <laughs> Another clue is that the player he was when he joined Chelsea is not the same player that people tend to remember when they think about his career. So either he was brilliant at Chelsea and crap before, which wouldn't make sense because they wouldn't have signed him, or he was rubbish after they signed him. And he was good before. Not even that he was rubbish. Just I think they signed him for different reasons for what he became. And he's British. Mm-hmm. Did he play in the Mourinho team? Yeah, he was. He, that was his era at Chelsea. I was going to say Steve Sidwell, but I think he might have come. Yeah, I don't know if he won no. the league. I was thinking Sidwell as well. It's not Sidwell, but probably you can make a few comparisons between the two players. Oh, it's Scott Parker. Uh-huh. It is oh, Scott wow. Parker. Yeah. Oh, Scott Parker, classic. Scott, Scott Parker is, was such a talented footballer, and it was interesting to see him go from quite a tidy, almost like, you know, Chavi is, you know, I'm not going to, I've already said it, so I'll just finish saying what I was going to say, but, you know, he, and again, even Iniesta, again, obviously not in the same like, league, but he did end up becoming a bit more of a destroyer later on down the line, although he scored a few sort of spectacular goals for West Ham in particular, but... He was a player, and I'm surprised it didn't work out at Chelsea for him because he was a really talented player at Charlton. He also loved a London club, so yeah, it makes it even more peculiar that the Chelsea thing didn't work out. I've never seen him with his shirt untucked. Find <laughs> me a photo. He is, he is one of the smartest-looking footballers, that's true. Is he, he, he's managing Fulham now, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He's doing, he's doing sort of okay, I think. He'll probably last another year or so. So far, we've mainly spoken about teams from the top flight of football who receive significant investment. But of course, top flight teams are not the only ones to be pumped full of money. Can anyone else think of teams further down the pyramid that suddenly found themselves flush with cash? Yeah, the Class 9 suit are always busy fellas. They've got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. Uh, basically, they've come together and they've invested in a small town club, Salford City. And do you know what? Fair play to them. I think, you know, they've, they've obviously got the money to fund these, uh, you know, when they're in the conference, they get like League 2, League 1 players down, which was pretty impressive. And they are a big scalp in the lower leagues. And I think they've given uh, the lower leagues a bit more media attention, which is always, you know, good in these sort of times, you know, where money's a bit tough down there. So... Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people have to, are sceptical about it, but I think it's a, a nice little project. And they're doing all right. In, you know, they're 11th in 
League Two, I think. So there we go. I mean, I don't know if anybody watched um, in the sort of earlier years of Salford City, they had a documentary. And when they had those yeah. joint managers, the slightly scary duo, I forget what they're called now. I think they manage Chester now. But it was quite interesting kind of seeing the journey of um, the club. And yeah, obviously, you can tell whilst it is all a bit cringe, the whole Salford City class of 92 thing, I do genuinely feel like they have a vested interest in it. And they are kind of, yeah, they're not, they're not just another crazy owner pumping money. Like they actually want to create a legacy there. So it, I think it will be quite intriguing to see what happens. But Alex, as a, as a City fan and someone who maybe isn't too keen on the class of 92, what do you make of the whole Salford City project? Um, I think it's fascinating how the class of 92 worked out very quickly how Manchester United work. So, like, the, 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 all the stories when they bought Salford City was they were going to use it to develop young players and it was all going to be about free agents and ex-Premier League Academy graduates. And then after a couple of years, they were like, oh, should we go and spend a lot of money and get loads of really good players in? So they went and got Adam Rooney from Aberdeen, who was playing top-flight football in Scotland, and then went to go and score the goals and be awesome at, at Salford City. And I think that's how, like, Man United worked. Everyone looks at United's and talks about the class of 92, which is an amazing thing to, to bring through five or six world-class players and a whole squad of players that have played together since they were kids and through the academy. I'm not taking anything away from that, but United are also the club that have broken the transfer records more than any other club in England. Uh, they're always the club that spend the most. They've got the biggest wage budget and have them for some time, even with City and Chelsea coming in. And everyone forgets that. And everyone talks about United Academy because Beckham and Ryan Giggs and Paul Scholes were all very good. That was an exceptional thing that hasn't really happened in English football since. And yet the Class 92 sort of realised, I think, when they bought Salford, that actually it isn't easy to produce several good players in one academy group. It's very, very, very hard. And the reason that like Dario Gardi at Crewe was held in high regard for so long is that Crew Alexandra were doing that for so long. And that's not an easy thing to replicate. And actually, the reason the Class of 92 is so special is that it doesn't happen very often, certainly at that level. And it doesn't happen very often at Sanford City either. So they've thrown loads of money around. I'm fortunate enough to know a couple of non-league fans, that match-going non-league fans, who see Salford City the same way that Premier League fans see Man City and Chelsea. And they look at a lot of the Salford City fans and go well you weren't going before Gary Neville and Paul Scholes were on the touchline every week it's interesting how Premier League fans look at it and go oh isn't that great Salford City but actually it is the big evil money coming in and buying the league over and over again and they've pumped them into the football league rightly or wrongly at the expense of like Stockport County which is another greater Manchester club which hasn't got any money but they get Attendance is upwards of 5,000 and are now playing, I think, in the Conference North. And yet Salford City, historically a much smaller club, but now in the Football League with attendances of less than half that, purely because they, they were the lucky ones who got bought out by rich ex-footballers. Yeah, there's certainly an element fair, of luck. Fair, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> Yoni, in that case, I mean, speaking of clubs from lower down, as we have been trying to, to buy their way up the table, is there another story you have for us? Yeah, I mean, from one that is arguably working and achieving some measure of success to one that palpably didn't, Notts County in 2009, anyone? I mean, that's a story. Notts County as a team have already had quite a storied history. Of course, they're known as the oldest team in the English Football League. They were almost liquidated in both 1986 and 2003. But then 
in 2009, something extraordinary happened. I think there was a rumor going around on one of the Notts County forum sites, a quote that said, tomorrow will be the best day of your lives. And then, would you know it, the next day, it was announced that a consortium called Munto Finance Consortium were taking over based in one of the Gulf states and linked to a bank called, I think, CAD Bank. And no one really knew where this had come from. No one really knew what Monto Finance Consortium was. The club itself had published an official statement linking itself to the names of two Bahraini families, one of which came out and denied any connection with the club, and the other of which was only vaguely known because of fraudulent financial activity. But it just added to this sort of mysterious saga that was developing. Before you know it, Sven Juran Eriksson, who I think his last involvement in football had been managing Mexico and then perhaps Thailand after his one year stint at Man City, was their director of football. I mean, that's another thing, you know, the responsibility of being a manager suddenly being transposed onto director of football are very different things. And they were suddenly linked with players like Christian Vieri, Luis Figo, Jorge Andrade, who had played for Portugal at World Cups and Euros, was without a club and started training with them. But then the big names actually arrived. Kasper Schmeichel, again, very highly rated young goalkeeper at the time, dropped down the divisions to be their goalkeeper. And then out of nowhere, Sol Campbell, who had been released by Portsmouth, arrived. And he was still operating at a relatively decent Premier League level. And of course, only ended up playing one solitary game, a loss to Morecambe, in which Kasper Schmeichel almost equalised in the last minute with a bicycle kick just to kind of encapsulate the madness that was going on at the club at the time. Sol Campbell, I think, decided that League Two wasn't really for him, and he then rejoined Arsenal. He's probably the only player to play in a League Two game and the Champions League in the same season. Um, I don't know if you have any other ideas of that happening. But then all the details started spilling out, and you realise what a weird story this is. Basically, on December the 10th, so this is four or five months after this whole thing exploded, it emerged that Munto Finance Consortium was basically a man called Russell King, who's quite a well-known fraudster, who had used the nickname or had signed contract papers L. Voldemort, so that his actual name wouldn't be associated with any of the contracts he had involved in either raising raise funding for Notts County or, you know, giving it himself. There was a trip that he took with Sven Juran Eriksson to North Korea to persuade the government to hand over gold mining rights in exchange for billions of US dollars, allegedly from Bahraini investors. And essentially, they had this man who was using the pretense of Bahraini investment, of links to Bahraini royalty and very wealthy families to finance his own little project of a League Two team and trying to attract all of these big names. And the more you find out about it, the more you read about it, the more you understand why it was a complete failure. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, memories of it, or if you think it's even possible for that amount of money to be bumped into a team so low in the football pyramid, and it work. Like, is it possible to be successful when you have such a huge investment to try and transform the club from what it is to what you think it could be? First off, I think that story about Sven and, and Russell going to North Korea is insane. That sounds like a movie, like Sven and Russ's Wild Weekend. But anyway, I think the point you make, though, about the kind of butting of heads between trying to go so high from so low down, any transition is difficult. 
bringing people in who are used to top level interaction through every level of the club between the players between the playing staff um putting them into a smaller club where inevitably there's going to just be massive differences kind of around every corner is going to naturally come with uh with difficulties for the players dropping down for the coaching staff dropping down and it's going to take time for both parties to kind of meet in the middle so i think it's possible but I don't think it could be done in that way, though, because presumably it would have failed financial fair play today, bringing in all those guys that they, even though I know Schmeichel wasn't the Schmeichel he is today, but you still would have been on a shit ton of money. And then you had Sol Campbell, who obviously was a big deal, and a few other players who were a decent big deal. But I definitely think kind of Salford is the example in many ways. But look at, look at Fleetwood Town. They're in the League One playoffs now. They, they had a lot of money pumped into them. And they could be in the championship soon. And I mean, I don't think Fleetwood Town were really had any kind of history of playing in the Football League before they got in about six, seven years ago. So I think as long as the people that are pumping money in aren't fraudsters and have like a plan and you've got a chance, but sadly for Notts County, they were literally con men that were doing it. So they were doomed from the start. And sadly, they, they're no longer the oldest team in the Football League because they, they are, of course, now not even in the Football League. They got relegated. Right. Um, into the National League. So it's really, in the 10 years following this weird thing that happened to them, it's, things have really gone from bad to worse. We've come to the end of today's episode. As always, I want to say thank you to my co-host Joe, as well as Yoni and John. A special thank you today to Alex. Thank you for taking this time to come join us. How did you enjoy yourself today, Alex? Oh no, thanks for having me. It's been nice. Thanks for saving me from Norwich and Southampton as well, which was uh, especially tedious, even by the standards of lockdown football. And I say that, I only watched the first 20 minutes. It might be like a four-all and we've missed that. But no, thanks for having me is what I'm trying to say. It's been nice. It's been lovely hanging out with you. I would love to do it again. Uh, when you get Carlos Camini here, I'll, I would love to come back as well. I've got him on speed dial and you'll be the first to know once we get him. Do you have any projects that you're working on at the moment, Alex? Anything you'd like people to know about? Um, I'm on the uh, Manchester Football Social, which is uh, a podcast that goes out every Sunday uh, via XS Manchester. And we talk City and United, but also uh, all the greater Manchester clubs. So Bolton, Wigan, Stockport, Macclesfield and so on. Uh, so anyone who is listening who is a fan of Northwest football, do go and check that out. I'd love to have you. Cheers once again, Alex. It's been really nice talking to you, getting to know you, and thanks again for taking the time out to be with us today. Cheers. As always, on social media, you can find us on Twitter at BlazersFGPod, and then for Instagram and Facebook, it'll be at Blazers for goalposts. Now, I'm really excited to be able to introduce our listeners to a band who we're thrilled to have playing us off for today's episode. We're hoping that this will be just the beginning of a tradition of lining up some great musical acts for the podcast. Taking it away today, you're going to be listening to an original performance from the band Mulholland. Hi, this is Rory from Mulholland, and you've been listening to Blazers for Goalposts. This is our song, In Flight. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs>